Hey, it's Megan Trainer for Profile by Sanford. Life's really full these days with rehearsing, performing, writing music, and balancing family. I need a nutrition plan that's easy to follow. I need one-on-one nutrition coaching. With nearly 200,000 members nationwide, Profile is transforming lives with one-on-one nutrition coaching and customized plans. Profile has a plan for me, and Profile has a plan for you. Doctor-developed and science-backed. Find your plan at ProfilePlan.com today. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Good afternoon. This is In the Know with Mo, and I'm your guest host, Atiba. Uh, This week, I am sitting in for Mo, who is out of town. But um, I have some very special guests. And if you recall, last week, I was a guest here with Mo. We had a great conversation on race relations in America. And this week, we're going to follow up some of that and talk about some of the issues that are going around in states. We're going to talk to two elected officials from uh, Kentucky, as well as Illinois. And then we have the CEO of a, an app that is working to bridge the gap in health equity um, mm. from Genie. And then we also have uh, a, someone who is in Loudoun County, Virginia. We're going to talk about anti-racism. But before that, let me bring on my guest, my first guest, Senator Gerald Neal out of Kentucky, who has been in the state legislature representing District 33 since 1988. Welcome, Senator Neal. How you doing, Antifa? Glad to be here. I'm great. I'm great. Thank you so much for making time. I know you all are busy. You guys have a lot of stuff going on in Kentucky. Uh, we, I know we've been talking backstage about um, voter legislation and um, some of the things that have been going on on that front. But, you know, there's also some other things. We just saw this incredible election where 81 million people voted for President Joe Biden. Yet we saw 74 million people vote for the former president. And from all of this, we did not see any state legislatures flip. Um, out of 66 legislatures um, that are controlled by Republicans, there are still 66 legislatures being controlled by Republicans. You're in Kentucky. You all um, have been on the forefront of a lot of issues where, you know, there was Breonna Taylor. We've been t- listening to things about voter ID laws. Tell us, you know, the landscape. We you know January 6th happened and a lot of people keep talking about what happened on the Capitol. But we know that there are a lot of other things that are going on in state capitals. What's the tone? What are the things that are going on in Kentucky um, in your legislature right now? Well, that's a very interesting question, and the answer is kind of complex. (laughs) But it is in sync with what's happening nationally, I believe. Uh, What's happening in Kentucky is, first of all, you got to understand that this is a blood-red state. Uh, This was gerrymandered the last time around in such a way that uh, it makes it almost uh, impossible, uh, at least improbable, that you're going to have anything other than a blood red state. Uh, I guess the challenge to that particular piece is that the urban areas are different. The urban areas like Louisville and Lexington, uh, Louisville being the largest city in Kentucky, are blue. So uh, if you keep going down that particular role, uh, we have a uh, 
red dominated Senate and um, House of Representatives. In fact, they have super majorities in both. But you uh, have a but you have a Democratic governor. How does that's that? That's where I was going. But we have we exactly right. But we have a Democratic governor uh, who won by uh, about five thousand votes, wow. and um, uh, and he's doing a pretty good job. But as you would think, as you would believe, that legislative configuration militates against him every chance they get in terms of compromising his uh, uh, power and influence. Uh, also pulling back everything that they can with respect uh, to whatever they can pull back from him in terms of decision making. They just took the the, the funds that uh, Biden just struck a pen with and they they uh, they're just waiting for those funds to roll in so that the governor would have to come to the legislature in order to spend a nickel of it. So, so yeah. So how does this play out? I mean, you, so we, we see the same thing happen in Wisconsin, um, where there's a, a, a Democratic governor, yet a red legislature. How does this change? You know, you, we, we, you, in terms of Louisville and Lexington, two big urban areas that are populated mostly by African-Americans or largely by African-Americans, yet the rest of the state is different. But how do you change these legislatures? You know, we, you said that the governor won by 5,000 votes. What is it that people on the ground need to be doing in order to try to change the makeup of the legislature? Well, there's multiple things that you have to do, but one fundamental thing you have to do is you got to go back to your base and organize very intentionally. You have to examine that particular piece, but you have to go right back to your base and figure out what it is you need to do to respond to that, pave the way to the future. And I don't think we've done a good job of that, quite frankly. Uh, and I think even the Democratic Party, uh, which is predominantly you would find uh, supported by African-Americans as well, uh, you find I don't think they've done a good job as well. So we have to go back to our base. Uh, and if, you, if you're African-American and you're functioning, you have a discussion to have with the party that, uh, that you're dealing with. There's no more we depend on you and you come around six weeks before an election and you expect a win, and then you go away. What has to happen now is that uh, those things that are of interest and critical to this dependable base, so to speak, has to be served in that process. So we're going to have to reconfigure our relationship and have a discussion about that. The a way lot we yeah. Sorry. A lot of times I like to think that in order to fix some things, we have to go back. You've been in the legislature now since 1988. Yeah. What are some of the things that were different in 1988 that, that are different today in 2021? Well, the, the most significant thing is, is that when I went into the legislature, we were in the majority in both houses. And Kentucky uh, historically has been Democratic. Um, and then uh, the voting patterns changed somewhat. In fact, if you look at the voting patterns in the South and how they started and how they moved around, Kentucky was like the last state or its legislatures to fall in terms of Democrat to Republican. At first was divided, a Republican Senate and a Democratic House. And then the House fell about four years ago. And uh, so now it's gained ground. And it's part of that whole wave that took place. So it's, it was predictable. In fact, we got a saying in Kentucky that if it happens somewhere, it happens 20 years later in Kentucky. <laughs> so, so I have proof of that. <laughs> but, but, 
But you know, I I think I think um, the fact of the matter is is that they played it very well in Kentucky. What they did, Kentucky is a very, uh, I'd say, um, center right at least. Um, and I think what they did, the Republicans did a very shrewd thing here. They played uh, Kentucky politics off of what was being pushed out nationally. So that didn't jive well uh, with Kentucky. The, the, the rhetoric that you hear from the national scene does not purport, comport well in Kentucky. Okay, And that's the way they ran local elections against Washington. And of course, we had uh, McConnell, who was in a, um, a position of power, has been for a number of years. Uh, so he can wield a lot of influence with respect to that through his surrogates as well as himself. He's not well regarded in Kentucky. Uh, but that gets to the last election. That was a Trump election, and, and, and they love Trump in Kentucky. When I say they, I'm not talking about me, right? So... <laughs> So uh, that that particular nuance was significant in the outcomes of that election. On the other hand, in the gubernatorial election, um, we had uh, individuals whose father used to be a governor of Kentucky as well. Mm-hmm. And so he was building upon and had those kinds of connections and uh, things began to come together in that particular regard. So, yeah. So... Um, before we let you go, I really wanted to also focus a little bit about Breonna Taylor. I know I saw one of your Facebook lives a, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, where you had the new um, police chief of Louisville. What are some changes or, or that have happened, maybe good or bad, that have happened as a result of the untimely and senseless death of Ms. Breonna Taylor? Well, one of the things that happened was that the mayor... Um, in the midst of that, of course, and responding to that, began to put restrictions and, uh, you know, requirements of, of body cameras being on, et cetera, a number of things internally. And following that, the Metro Council, which is our city uh, council, um, uh, started putting those things in place and, in fact, uh, required our ban no-knock warrants, for instance, but that only went to Jefferson County, and they also required body cameras and that sort of thing. But that's only Jefferson County. Out in the state, it's business as usual. So that gets into my bailiwick. So the fight for getting extended no-knocks was extended to the state. Uh, Basically, what happened was the no-knock bills that were filed in the Senate and the House, of course, did not get a hearing in that situation. However, the uh, president of the Senate sponsored a bill, Senate Bill 4, which... um, was a step, I say a very modest step, uh, but a step in the in the sense that it restricted uh, the use of when you could use no knocks, but at the same time uh, it also brought more scrutiny to the process of obtaining no knocks. So it was it was positive in that sense, but it was far away from what was intended in terms of the original no knock bills. So unfortunately, we're running out of time in this segment. Um, in terms of with the no-knock, I know we saw her boyfriend was acquitted. I mean, or the, I don't say acquitted; they threw the charges out. Um, right. But Perfectly. right, but yeah. but um, you know, there, when we are seeing Kentucky from outside, um, we're seeing it, I guess, twenty years in advance, <laughs> and we're like <laughs> waiting for to see for Kentucky to go to break up. But listen, thank you so much, Senator Neal, for joining us to, um, today. These segments they go so fast, but 
Um, I look forward to talking with you again soon. Um, and to our audience, we will be right back. We are back. This is I am host Eva, and right now we have a new, uh, another guest. Kirsten Breck Baker is the CEO of Genie. And she's going to talk a bit about Jeannie, and then we're going to talk about how this applies to health equity, which I was really, really amazed, uh, Kirsten, here about. But thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me, Ativa. Pleasure to be here. So I'm going to just start it off. How did Jeannie, because, you know, when I think of Jeannie, I'm thinking about a genie in a bottle, <laughs> and I'm thinking about the show that I used to watch as a kid. How did Jeannie, J-E-E-N-I-E, how did it come to be? Well, uh, your instinct about the genie in the bottle is certainly right. It's more like a genie in your phone or your mobile device. So instead of rubbing the bottle, though, you don't rub the phone, but you press a button and it's basically a mobile platform that will connect you to a video or audio call with a live interpreter any time of the day, 24-7 for on-demand language assistance. So uh, the way we got here was, uh, you know, my parents are linguists. I guess you could say language is in my DNA. Uh, and through their work here in the U.S. and abroad, uh, I became acutely aware of how being able to communicate with people across cultural barriers, language barriers, really brings people together professionally and personally. And it culminated in this moment where I was traveling overseas and a business colleague of mine had one of those classic machine translation mishaps and, you know, had to go to the hospital because of a mistranslated like food allergy word. And I was like, this is ridiculous. You know, we have you know, millions of people around the world, hundreds of millions of people who speak different languages and different cultures. And, you know, they're often available to be helping all of the other people out here who need immediate access to language. We live in a gig economy. Let's actually bring the gig economy model to put interpreters on your phone, on your mobile device, whenever you need them. All right. So now how does this apply to health equity? Uh, you know, I've been working in, I know the, the health disparities and the, the terminologies continue to change. We're talking about equity now. How does it apply to health equity? Well, and, you know, just to be kind of very clear, health, health equity is a very broad issue. And as we both know, those issues run very deep. Uh, the causes are very systemic and they're going to take a long time to work out. So we're talking about kind of one piece of that. And we're talking about the piece that's affected by language barriers. And so while, you know, there's a lot we can't do immediately or quickly to affect health equity, uh, fixing a language barrier is something we can do. And right now, most people are unaware that one in five people in our country do not speak English at home. In fact, 25 million people in our country are not comfortable speaking English, and that number is growing. So there are hundreds of thousands of conversations happening every day between patients and caregivers. And if I can't communicate to you, my doctor, what my symptoms are, and you don't really understand my symptoms, you can't possibly diagnose me correctly or treat me correctly. And the result of that can be I stay sick or I recur, you know, sick and I go back into the hospital or I, you know, you know, at worst case, lose my, you know, um, life or, right. um, you know, a lot of there's a lot of liability now in lawsuits. So it's it's very kind of worrisome. And essentially language barriers at this stage mean there's lack of access to care for certain people. Um, there's a higher risk in that healthcare to certain people and the just poorer outcomes in general. So one of the things I find interesting, I mean, we're, we've been in the middle of a pandemic, we've, well, not in the middle, we've, it's a year now that we've been in this pandemic. And there are a lot of people that haven't been yeah. going to the doctor, huh? We hope we're beyond the middle. <laughs> yeah, we hope so. 
But there are a lot of people who haven't been going to the doctor. I know in some of the work that I'm doing, we've been talking about the fact that there are a lot of people that aren't going to get cancer screenings. So you add those things into and also with the language barriers. Um, you were recently um, at the White House for a health equity meeting. Tell us some of the things that are, been, that are being talked about now from the administration standpoint, how this trickles down to people like me, people who are part of that one in five who have language barriers. So, you know, it's wonderful that the administration and the White House has convened this task force on health equity. Um, and, you know, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith is just incredible in the kind of the work that she's doing here. Um, and the focus is in saying, you know, we've got to find a way that access to health care is just more equitable. And as we know, um, there are worsening inequities right now, especially in communities of color. And when that kind of um, surfaces, if you will, from a language perspective, um, by the you know it's predominant in the Latinx community, but not entirely. Uh, we have Haitian Creole populations and lots of color uh, populations in this country that are struggling because of an you know a, a language barrier. That means that they're not getting access to uh, information that's being circulated. So when COVID, you know, first kind of came on the scene, Atiba, it was days, if not weeks, before certain populations in our country actually knew what symptoms to look for with COVID, what sure. kind of, you know, um, you know, precautions they could take because those materials were not being translated into other languages. And so now what the health, you know, the task force is looking at is, okay, we've got to get people tested. How do we tell them that testing is available, that it's safe, where to go? Now we have a vaccine dissemination issue and there are so many layers of complexity there, but around trust, how do we get people to trust that the vaccines are safe? And very significantly, when we get people to come and get vaccinated, how at the point of vaccination, at the moment of, of care, in the moment of need, do we communicate to them what are the instructions that they need to follow in their language um, and, and what kind of you know, um, comfort can we give them? And what we see is that being able to communicate with somebody in your language at the point of vaccination not only gives you this sense of trust and comfort, but you, you, you will adhere to the protocol that's being provided to you in that moment. Yeah. So someone who's listening to this now, how can they find Jeannie? How can they get it? Is there a cost? Um, tell us how, how, they can, how they can access this. So, you know, healthcare providers can find us at healthcare at genie.com, J-E-E-N-I-E.com. As you say, they can contact me, CEO at genie.com or info at genie.com. And we, you know, provide them with a monthly subscription and per minute fee. But if you're a patient, if you are uh, a limited English uh, speaking patient, or if you're deaf, you know, you can use Genie to take us to the doctor, to take us to vaccine sites and COVID testing sites. And right on your smartphone, right on your tablet, you can bring up an interpreter on demand and, and you can have conversations with us. And you can just download the app uh, on the app store, either Apple or uh, Android and Google Play. And, um, you know, basically you put in a credit card and you press a button and you're on your way. All right. Well, listen, I, I think what you have is amazing. Um, I think that more people need to know about what this is as well as how they can access it. It's um, th this issue of health equity has really shown itself um, pretty clearly um, during this pandemic. So hopefully also as we come out of the pandemic, there will be some other ways too to continue closing these gaps, particularly from cultural disparities and cultural um, issues. So thank you so much. Kirsten for joining us um, this afternoon. And um, so if you all wanna 
um, help one of, one of your friends, go to genie.com and find out more about how to cut down and break down some of these uh, language barriers. Thank you very much, Kirsten. Thank you, Atiba. Thank you for bringing attention to the issue. Okay, we're back with In the Know with Mo. I'm your guest host, Atiba, and joining me now is Illinois State Senator L.G. Sims, from, who represents District 17, and it's a very diverse uh, district, but it includes parts of Chicago. Welcome, Senator Sims. Thanks for having me, Atiba. Good to be with Look, you. Good to see you I see you. I, same here. I see you're in your car, so that means that you're, being, you're very busy doing the work of your constituents, so we really appreciate you taking time to join us. It's my I pleasure. Wanted, I wanted our audience today to get a chance to talk to you, to listen to you talk about um, some legislation, um, some very historic legislation addressing police reform that was recently passed and signed by the governor um, that you sponsored um, and working with the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus um, that really addresses a, a bail reform and a number of other issues that are really big and pressing um, around the country. Can you tell us, first off, why was legislation like this needed? Well, Tibeth, first of all, thanks for having me. And the reason this was needed is, as as a as a state and as a country, during this last year, uh, we saw the confluence of really three uh, three pandemics: the pandemic of COVID nineteen, uh, economic uh, economic pandemic, but also an an, an epidemic of COVID of, of sixteen nineteen, and that is the systemic racism and the impact that it has had on communities of color around the, around the state of Illinois, but across the country. Uh, we had this, this, this reckoning and this call to arms from uh, communities across, across the state of Illinois that they wanted to see something done. So we, as we talk about uh, the, the, our efforts to end systemic racism in the Illinois, in the Illinois, Illinois state government from the, from the perspective of changing how we, how we, how we educate our young people, uh, creating economic opportunities and removing barriers in to creation of economic opportunities, addressing healthcare deserts and healthcare availability and access. All of those fa failures in those those three areas ended up in failures in the criminal justice system. So as we look to reimagine what public safety looked like in the state of Illinois, we we let this effort to 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 take this holistic approach to improving all four of those different areas. The criminal, ju the criminal justice system sits at the end of all those other failures. So as you mentioned, uh, we, we undertook this effort to, uh, to change our, our, our cash bail system uh, because the size of someone's bank account should not be the determining factor of whether or not they are held on a pretrial basis. Their threat to public safety should be what determines that. We've set out to improve the- Before you, I'm sorry, can I go sure. back to that bail piece? Mm -hmm. Because um, there are a lot of people that sit in jail for minor offenses because they can't make their bail. What does this, how big, I mean, how big is this piece in terms of the bail piece in, in, in this legislation? I think this is it's huge. The fact that you have individuals who sit, who sit in county jails across the, across the country, uh, across the state of Illinois, because they cannot, they cannot uh, pay the amount of bail necessary uh, to get them out to go to even go to trial. Uh, we had a state's attorney say recently that, uh, well, you know, people plead guilty because they're because they're guilty. Well, that's not that's not true. I mean, you know, when you have someone who is incarcerated 
and incapacitated, they will they will do just about anything to get themselves out. You know, there are case after case, instance after instance, where individuals accepted a plea bargain, even though they 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 knew they were innocent. The plea bargain was not necessarily in their best interest, but they did it just so they could get out. And you know, and, and I have personally within the last several days, I've had I've had an experience with this personally. I, I had an individual. Uh, pull a pull a handgun on me on Monday. Uh, wow. Chase chase my car. Uh, you know he he was an individual. In I was leaving the Capitol when it happened. Um, he was arrested and detained. It was it was determined that the individual was in possession of the handgun illegally, and he and he and he has had he had his his his, his concealed carry license revoked. Well, what happened? That individual went into court. He got a money bond of one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. He has access to resources. So what did he do? He's free right now. Under, he, so, un, so he was able to pe- post the fifteen thousand dollar bail and he's free. Now, if under the, the reforms that we passed, if he, him being a threat to public safety, as he is a threat to an individual person, as he is, he would have been held in custody. That's so he would not have had the opportunity to bond himself out because he because he is a threat. Our system it holds individuals who don't have access to cash and lets lets those who are who do have access to cash go free. And that's not the way our, our pretrial system should work. So what are some changes um, that may happen as this is because I think some of the police unions and there are others that are against the legislation. What are some of the changes that may happen or some of the negotiations that may be coming along? There there, there are a number of changes, particularly as we as we reimagine public safety and we reimagine what uh, what the relationship between law enforcement and the communities that they represent looks like. So you, you have now. You no longer have the, the the requirement that an individual sign a sworn affidavit in order to make a complaint against a law enforcement officer. You now have the ability for a, a duty to intervene. So it, just as you looked at the situ- the very painful situation with George Floyd, where we watched for those eight minutes and 46 seconds in absolute horror, now there is a duty to intervene for law enforcement officers. So they can no longer stand by and watch something and let something like that happen and not do anything. But in, uh, in, uh, related to that, there is also the uh, ability and a protection for whistleblowers. So if an officer were to step in, he, they could not be retaliated against by, by doing so. And it doesn't matter what the rank of the person is that they step in against, they are, they will, they can be, there, there are protections built into the law because of it. There are, there's a, but, but in addition, this is to show that we are not attempting to vilify law enforcement officers and the, the absolute opposite is actually the case. We are trying to lift up those good officers and give them the support that they need to improve the, the profession of policing. So what we also created was a decertification process for law enforcement officers. So if there are bad officers and they have engaged in activities which would get them, uh, that, should, that should force them to be separated from the professional policing, that process now exists because of the Safety Act. Before, an officer could only be fight, could only be removed from office and re- only stripped of their police powers and be decertified after being convicted of a crime. That's no longer the case. But also, we, we have now built in a process that invests in additional training for officers. We've built in support for uh, law, enforcement, law enforcement officers who have mental health challenges. So this, this, this is a holistic approach and an attempt 
to address a number of challenges, a number of issues. But there's also built into into this new law uh, residency requirements for for mm. municipalities of one hundred thousand dollars, one hundred thousand people or more. They now have to live in a municipality that they that they police. That if you if your if your law enforcement officer is your neighbor and they get to see you through the lens of your humanity, you, the relationship that exists between the two of you will be vastly different. So there are a number of changes. You know that now we, the attorney general can uh, investigate police de- deaths occurring in police custody. There are safeguards for pregnant women who are who are held in in in, in, in county jail pretrial. Uh, there there are a number of factors in this bill that make this one of the most pro-safety, pro-progressive, pro-community law enforcement reform and criminal justice reform bills in the entire country. And what I was so proud about was the partnership that so many advocates and activists had with us as we as we as we as we endeavored to to complete this the Safety Act and pass the Safety Act. It was truly a, a partnership between advocates and advocates activists, and it was something, and the product shows it. So, have you had other legislators from around the country reaching out to you, asking you how did you get this done, and and and, and could you help them in terms of some of the things that they want to do? Absolutely. So we, we've talked to members from around the country already. Uh, one of my colleagues from uh, Pennsylvania just introduced uh, a bail reform act uh, similar to uh, to what we passed uh, in the Pennsylvania State Senate. Uh, so this is this is it, we are we are creating a national movement uh, to 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 really reimagine public safety and, and force us to change how we think we have. We've tried the policies of mass incarceration and and, and, and over and over policing uh, and under resourcing. Now it's time to start uh, the uh, the process and the policies of collaboration uh, and focus on the future. And that's what we do. That's what we're doing with the Safety Act. Look, I I really appreciate what you're doing. I can only imagine the challenges that it had to take in order to bring this about. I really also like the way that you're using the term reimagining. Um, this because it, it's really hard. I know for myself, you know, being in Washington D.C., it hurts me often remembering the days when in school we had an officer friendly. So it was about building that community relationship and for us as children to be feel comfortable with police officers to where it has come now, where it's it's like the police officers feel almost like they're your enemy. I can't tell you how many times I walk past a police officer, look them dead in the eye to say, hello, you know, and will look back at me. And, and not speak. So this whole idea that you talk about reimagining, um, I, I really hope that this is something that is not just something that is for us as citizens, but also something for police officers. So thank you so much, That's Senator it. Simmons, for joining us and for sharing what you've done. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing there. And we look forward to talking to you again in the future. I look forward to it. Too. Thank you, my brother. Good seeing you. All right. Well. Thank you. Hi, we are back. This is In the Know with Mo, and I'm your guest host, Atiba. And now joining me is Jamie Nydick. She's in Loudoun County, Virginia. And boy, Jamie, um, first off, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I know you have a very um, big issue that's going on um, out there in Loudoun County, the wealthiest county in the country. I don't know if uh, some of our listeners will be surprised at the racism that exists there. But you're the co-founder of an anti-racist group. Can you tell us a little bit about that group 
and how it got started. I simply put, our county has a problem with racism. And this is backed up by data. This isn't something where you've got a bunch of, you know, these affluent white liberal moms saying, hey, there's, there's a problem that doesn't exist. It started with just some examples of what's going on in my county. Um, we had a historically black school in Ashburn where I live that was vandalized with racist slurs. There've been all sorts of problems, particularly in our schools to the point where in 2019, the Equity Collaborative um, did a, a study about Loudoun County schools and the tw there were 23 pages in this report. And one of the big findings was that there were pervasive racial slurs from white students, parents, and teachers. Other incidents of what's been going on during uh, Black History Month a few years ago, um, for whatever reason, a teacher thought it was appropriate to hold a runaway slave game as part of Black History Month. Just recently, um, this month, we had a hockey, a hockey game in Ashburn with a team from out of town, and our students used the N-word allegedly at um, Black students on the opposing team. And just recently, at my son's high school, there was a student who posted a bunch of um, racist comments to social media. And this is just going on and on. It's a pervasive problem. It's backed up by data. And our school system did step up. They are trying to do the right thing and finding a solution. In response to that, um, some parents got together and they sent um, actual postcards to our homes telling us that the school is trying to um, train our children to hate us. And as a response to this and how much organization was going on to oppose doing anything, we put together a, a Facebook group and it is the Anti-Racist Parents of Loudoun County. It's a Facebook group. Um, there are a bunch of moderates, moderators in the group. I'm the only white moderator and I'll be very upfront as we go into this. The reason I'm here in front of you, the reason why they sent the um, affluent liberal female white woman, the awful or whatever they call us, is because my co-admins are scared. We are receiving threats um, to ourselves and to our children's, to our jobs. And how this all came about is that the group and parent, there's this group of parents who sent the postcard and there's a large anti-critical race theory movement. I want to be very, very clear as we go through this. This is not about critical race theory. Our group well, has no off, opinion. I'm sorry, Jamie. What does critical race theory mean? I don't, I don't think the other side absolutely knows. I mean, it's <laughs> simply looking at systemic racism with a critical eye and understanding what's going on in these systems. As a matter of fact, the Virginia Project, who has been a, a vocal um, force in this and in spurring other people to threaten us, has made a call to shut down not just critical race theory, but all efforts for diversity and equity in the schools all efforts. So what I want to emphasize is this is not about critical race theory at all. This is about a school system that has systemic racism that's documented over and over and over. And the folks who are saying this is, you know, stop critical race theory, they don't have an alternative. They're not saying we realize this problem is real and we want to work together and that's just not how we think we can solve it. What they're saying is we want to do nothing and allow this to perpetuate. And I would ask you, what's the opposite of an anti-racist? Because right. that's so me, what they are. It's, it, well, the opposite of anti-racist, I I'm, I'm, have no problem saying, is a racist. Um, and this country, it, it, we, we, we've been dealing with for this for a long time. Senator Sims just said the 1619 Project in terms of the fact that this has been going on for over 400 years in this country. But um, what I wanted you to be able to tell us, so you've, there's those people that are there, 
with this critical racist theory idea that are now labeling you and others, African-Americans, as a terrorist organization. Um, what I want you to be able to, to tell us is what is it, what are some of the things that we can be doing outside of this to build an echo chamber this, to counter their message? I think the big things is that we, first of all, we need truth. There was an article that came out that claimed among other things that my children went to a private prep school. My children have been in Loudoun County Public Schools since they were in kindergarten. Um, there were lies told about, they're just, it, it was total untruths. And it's as such, it sort of spiraled out of control. We want the truth out there. Um, we've been threatened with um, kidnapping. Our children have been threatened. So we need the community to come together and help us with that. But the big thing is we want to recenter this conversation back on what we do about this very real problem of racism in our schools. This is a diversion. Them claiming, um, they had these claims now that because we did admittedly one, one member, it's a Facebook group, we can't control what every member popes, wanted to make a list of the leaders of this movement, not private citizens, the leaders, people who, for example, literally ran for Congress and lost, people who have written op-eds in the Federalist opposing this. So this isn't reaching out and trying to destroy private citizens. But their response to us was to basically do what, you know, accuse your enemy of what you're doing yourselves and dox us. They've gone after my business. They've gone after our jobs. Um, they're really trying to destroy us as individuals. And if you watch them on the news when they're talking, one of the things that they want to do is to mock us and to call us names. Um, I got thick skin. I'm fine with that. But what it does is, again, move us away from the important conversation here, which is we have a school system with serious racism going on, and we want to move that conversation back to that. But we also do need to be able to protect our families and our children who have been threatened. I spent the day-to-day -day installing extra security cameras at my home. These threats are real. The FBI has been notified and is involved. And they're threatening us with saying that we were involved in racketeering. We haven't even, we haven't even had a bake sale. Um, so there's no money. They're saying George Soros is involved. And to, just to be clear about how benign this group is, as they pointed out in their own articles, we had a Commonwealth attorney who was in, in the group. We have lawyers from government agencies who are in the group, many, many teachers, school board members. This is probably the most um, benign group you're going to come across. And we're united for one purpose, which was supporting our public schools in their efforts for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, th the idea that we would be going after anybody anybody who's private is ridiculous. However, do we know who's against addressing this issue? Yes. Do you want to call it li a list? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't approve of doxing private citizens at all. But I will be very clear: the NRA keeps lists. They make ratings of public officials. Some of these people are running for Congress. They're running for school board. They're on the school board. So the fact that we actually have conversations about who in our community is taking action and who's opposing action, that doesn't violate their, their um, freedom of speech. They're saying they have civil rights violations here. Also, I wanna put it in perspective. We're being threatened and having our children threatened, our lives threatened, our children's lives threatened over a post somebody who's not even in the leadership team in this group made on Facebook. Think about that for a minute. So now this keeps going back to a post about putting names um, of people who basically are, are you saying that they, what's the list supposed to be about people that are racist? Was the list supposed to be about people that opposed you? How would you describe the list? 
I mean, I didn't, I didn't make the post about the list with the list. And I will say when it did go up, I, I responded by saying, hey, that's not what our mission is about. But what the, the individuals who made that list were looking to figure out who in the community was leading this charge for what was going on. And keep in mind that we received postcards to our home claiming that tolerance.org is a hate, hate organization and that the schools are um, encouraging our kids to hate us or teaching our kids to hate us. So, of course, we want to know who is driving this, that we don't elect them to the school board, so we don't elect them to Congress. I and mean, if that person runs for Congress again, we know to donate to their, to their opponent. This is about community activism. There has never been a call on our part to cause anybody any harm. I mean, the most terroristic thing I can imagine doing to somebody personally is I will make a donation to the human rights campaign in your name. Like that's what I got, maybe even Planned Parenthood. But- Well, Jamie, let me ask you this. Professionals, what yes. Is, what are some of the things that you feel that your group has achieved since it was founded? Um, we were very active in the last election in trying to encourage people to vote. Many of our members were out there, including myself, even though I'm high risk for COVID. So I was out there in a face shield and goggles and a mask, handing out um, sample ballots to Democrats when they were um, during the election. And be very clear, I'm not even a Democrat, but based on the situation with racism from the previous presidential administration, this was a really important, important election for us. And all of this is going on right now. You see them on TV too, and they're doing this while um, we just had that mass shooting of Asians. Right. Jamie, um, thank you so much. Is there a way that you do you want people to contact you? We've got to wrap up. We've got about 10 seconds. You want to give people a way that they can contact you? Um, they can reach out to me um, on my Facebook page. It is my business Facebook page, so I'm already getting harassed on it. So please find me um, and let me know. We do need support. Again, we are being threatened. Um, some of our members have gone into hiding at this point. They're afraid to leave their homes. Thank you very much. Listen, this is um, In the Know with Mo. I've been your guest host, Atiba. I hope that you've been found out, learned a little bit more about some of the things going on around the country. Um, Jamie, thank you so much for joining me um, this afternoon, and um, we wish you all the best. Thank all right. you. And we're there to support you. All right. All right. Um, this has been another episode of In the Know with Mo. I have been your guest host, Atiba, and Mo will be back with you next week. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you and take care. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Cousin Sal here, letting you know that nobody does sports like FanDuel Sportsbook. All new users get a $1,000 risk-free bet when you sign up and make your first deposit. Just place your first bet and get up to $1,000 back if you don't win. Sign up today, FanDuel.com slash Sal. 21 plus and present in Michigan. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problems? Call 1-800-270-7117 for confidence. Help.